We're in week four of our series on revival. And we've looked at the glory of God and revival, the word of God and revival. We looked last week in John 4 at the prophetic ministry of Jesus and how his prophetic ministry sparked revival in a town in Samaria. And today we're going to look at Acts 2. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit and the church and revival. And we've also been careful to say each week that there is controversy around revival, right? It's kind of a buzzword. It's misunderstood. There's some strange teaching. So what we want to do is go and see in the scriptures, what does the scripture teach about revival? So we've looked at the Old Testament a couple places, and we're looking in the New Testament. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm actually going to shift gears and do three weeks on revival and outpouring of the Holy Spirit in history. And we'll link some scripture to that as well. But Today, I want us to look at Acts 2, and what we're going to see here is one of the primary places in all of Scripture, a biblical foundation on revival. I've called it a biblical paradigm, a model, a pattern for revival in Acts 2. And it really is the only inspired account that we have in the New Testament of a model of revival for the the early church. And so we're going to see four elements in in this in Acts chapter 2. A little bit of context on the book of Acts. It's actually Luke-Acts. The Gospel of Luke and Acts are one book. It was one scroll in the early church which communicated something. What was happening in the, the Gospel of Luke? It was Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit doing the works of the Father, healing the sick, proclaiming the kingdom, and then Luke seamlessly went into the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. So the very book itself, the way it's structured, communicates that the church carries on the ministry of Jesus. Just as Christ himself was anointed with the Holy Spirit, he turns after his death and resurrection and anoints his church to go and do his works throughout the world. In chapter one, before we look at chapter two, we've got the resurrected Jesus meeting with his disciples, establishing a new disciple because Judas had fallen out and what he's discussing with them is the kingdom of God. And it's interesting because as he's meeting with them for 40 days, wouldn't you have liked to have been there? to hear that discussion. He's talking with them about the kingdom of God, and they're asking, Lord, when? When are you going to establish the kingdom? And he's basically saying, that's not for you to know. The details of that, the chronology, it's not for you to know, but what you can know is that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it's a similar situation today, isn't it? Many of us would say, Lord, When are you consummated? When are you wrapping this thing up? Lord, when will you bring revival? When will the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happen? And I think the Lord says to us, the timing of things is not for you to know. But what you can be assured of is, I've anointed you with the Holy Spirit. And I will fill you again and again and again. And so that sets the stage for Acts 2. There's a message for us. We were singing about it. We get to be part of this story. The church is born out of revival in Acts 2. The church is born out of revival. 
The church is born out of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a practical wisdom for us in Acts chapter 2. If you want to look in your Bibles, it's a rich passage, much like John 4, and we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read certain portions and then make some observations about Pentecost as a model for revival because we want to make sure as we seek the Lord and we pray and we fast and we do the, the due diligence that we have our face in Scripture. And we're saying, Lord, we want you to, to do it again, and we ask for you to do the things that you've done in the Bible. The first thing is found in verses 1 through 13, and it's visitation. It's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that this narrative details here. Verses 1 to 4, I'm going to read it. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. There were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. So we see the first section here. What the model is showing us here is that the Holy Spirit visits. The resurrected Jesus and the Father send the Spirit of God. There is an outpouring, and it happens on Pentecost. Pentecost basically means the, the 50th. So it's 50 days after Passover that the 120 are gathered together celebrating the festival of weeks, the festival of the harvest, the festival of the giving of the law, and the Spirit of God is poured out on them. They were all together. Look at verse 1b here. They were all together in one place. It was probably someone's home with enough space. So the Spirit of God is poured out on the 120 in this house, and they're going to go out to the streets shortly and see. But look at this, verse 2, and suddenly from heaven. It's like a lightning strike. Been chewing on this, these four words all week. And suddenly from heaven. Let's say that together. And suddenly from heaven. Why does God work this way? I don't know. But it's in the book. And suddenly from heaven. Who needs a suddenly from heaven today? Anybody here? I certainly do. I'm clinging to the Lord saying, in this particular situation with this person, 
I need a suddenly from heaven. I need the lightning of your love, your glory, your light, your gospel to strike this person. I need an and suddenly from heaven. As we look around in this region, the culture is crazy. We need an and suddenly from heaven. We need this sovereign God to visit just like we read about in Acts 2. We need an and suddenly from heaven. What happens here describes a sound like a violent rushing wind that fills the whole house. And Luke here knows the the Old Testament history and what he's doing is making some references to when God suddenly moved in times past. At Sinai in Exodus 19, there was fire with Elijah In 1 Kings 19, there was a wind. And so Luke is weaving these things together and he's saying, it's happening again. But this one is going to eclipse all other moves of God, all other manifestations of God. What's amazing, church, Acts 2 is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. The Lord saves his best for last. Acts 2 is not the end. It's just the prelude. It's just the beginning. This started with 120 people. It was 12 before that. Now we have a worldwide movement. Nothing like it in human history. Started from a guy in Nazareth. The Son of God. Suddenly, from heaven, the wind blows Jesus talks about this in John 3. He says, the wind blows where it pleases. Talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a gas or an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit visited the church personally and got involved. They were crying out, come Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, come. Just like Ezekiel promised. In Ezekiel 37, would you come and breathe on the dry bones? Would you raise up an army out of these dry bones? And the Lord did it. And suddenly, from heaven, the Spirit of God was poured out. We could talk about many things that are happening here, all kinds of symbols. The text is laden with meaning. One commentator says this, F.F. Bruce, great commentator on the book of Acts says, this is clear. The Spirit of God came on them in power. That's the point of the text. Jesus promised it in Acts 1.8, and it's happening. The Spirit of God comes upon the people of God in great power. Look at verse 3. Tongues of fire. Another image from the Old Testament. Think of Moses in Exodus 3 where he's meeting the Lord and the Lord appears like fire. Luke is trying to conjure up those images. The same thing is happening here. God is manifesting his presence. We looked in 2 Chronicles 7. Do you remember where the fire came into the temple? And that's what Luke is saying here. It's happening again, but in a way that outstrips all the other previous manifestations of God's presence. God is coming suddenly to his people. It's pretty mysterious. If you look at verse four, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other languages. 
The text talks about glossolalia, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, we know in Scripture there are different expressions of the gift of tongues. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of tongues that's used in worship, and you're uttering mysteries, and you're, you have a private prayer language, essentially, is what it is. And he says, use it wisely. This is something different, though, here. This is a missional expression of the gift of tongues. All of these people are gathered together, and they're hearing their own language miraculously. The Holy Spirit is giving the ability for these people to speak. And what is it they were speaking about? The mighty deeds of God. So they're not just babbling about anything. They're not just sharing their opinions. They're speaking about the glory, the majesty, the work of God on the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I would ask, how does this infilling work? If it happens for them, how does it happen for us? How many times are we baptized with the Holy Spirit? And I think the simple answer is we're baptized one time. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, we are joined to the body of Christ. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit, we drink of one Spirit for all time. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit, but then the book of Acts makes it abundantly clear that they're filled over and over again. We clear on that? So we're baptized once, but then we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and there's always a purpose. We're filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can share the gospel. We're filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can declare the mighty deeds of God. There's always a divine purpose for the infilling. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 18, don't get drunk with wine, but what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we know we're, it's not uh, really an, an either or, it's we, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is telling us, get under the waterfall of God's presence and be filled continually. Be intoxicated, not with wine, but with the Lord's presence, with the Lord's love. Get intoxicated with the gospel, is what Paul is saying. Some of you have been reading the Martin Lloyd-Jones book on revival. Who's, who's been reading that a little bit? I know some of you have. We've got copies of it at the, the door. I've photocopied a couple of, of pages, a couple of chapters from that. And I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was commenting on this very text here, and he was talking about the and suddenly of the Holy Spirit coming in this text. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, for some of you that know, he was a, a famous pastor at Westminster Chapel in London, a great preacher of Scripture. And he was looking at this text, and he was saying, we need to rediscover the and suddenly of the Lord when we gather together. And he talks about the balance. Some churches need order, and some people need freedom and spontaneity. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones is talking about that in this. And he says, we've got to strike a balance between that order and spontaneity in our time together in the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says. Hold on to your hats because Jones has a way of going right to the heart. Listen to what he says. Are we giving the Holy Spirit an opportunity? Are we so tied to our program that the Holy Spirit is excluded. Why this tying down of everything? What if the Holy Spirit should suddenly come? What would happen to your programs 
if the Holy Spirit suddenly took over. You have had it for years in the United States, his little jab at the U.S. here. Everything to the minute, the technique, all produced to perfect order. As I have said before, it does indeed remind one of some kind of performance. Put forward with slickness and everything to the second, always at the same point. I ask, in the name of God, where is there room for the freedom of the Holy Spirit? In this way, we've been seeking to control God's powerful presence instead of being controlled by it. So I ask us, our Lord, are we seeking to control God's presence or be controlled by it? I want to be controlled by God. I want us to have our faces in the scriptures. I want to be rooted in the scriptures, but God forbid that I think I can control the creator of the universe. I want, and suddenly from heaven, over and over again. I'm not interested in just playing church, tightening things up here and there. I think that based on the model that we have in Acts 2, we should long, we should yearn, we should pray, we should fast for the end suddenly from heaven. God, send your spirit. Lord, make us desperate. It's really easy to stay asleep, isn't it? I feel like the Lord has been waking me up in recent months. Some of you are wide awake. You're more awake than I am. Some of you are asleep. Cruise control. Comfortable. The Lord wants to wake you up. The Lord wants to wake us up and visit us. This is what his word teaches. This gives us the model for his movement. I just want to take a moment here. Let's just close our eyes. Father of love. Ask that you would awaken us. I ask that you would release a holy desperation among your people. This wouldn't be an add-on, but this would be something that we give ourselves to. As Kelly said, we contend for you to move. Spirit of God, quicken us, awaken us. Give us perseverance. In your name, Jesus. Reading this stuff will make you dangerous in a holy way. Will it not? We need to wake up, friends. I mentioned last week there is a revival of darkness occurring in our day. And if we sit back and we're content and we're asleep and we're satisfied with a little bit of Bible study, hanging out in one another's homes, it's not going to be enough. I think the Lord wants to mobilize this local church to be an army to wreak havoc in the camp of the enemy.
Amen? And I know you're with me. We're, we're going to go for it. And again, this is based on the impetus, the teaching of Scripture. We are going for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're leaving it in the Lord's hands, the Lord's time, but we're instructed by texts like this to contend for it. Verses 5 through 13, the people respond to what's happening. And there's a list of people. And what's interesting about this, it's focusing on Jewish people that are scattered all through the Roman Empire. And so that's what Luke is focusing on. He's saying there's Jews there, there's Jews there, there's Jews there, and they're actually coming to experience this feast in Jerusalem. The Lord's brought them here to witness what's going on. And it's a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. So you remember at the Tower of Babel, there was the confusion of languages. There was this scattering of the nations. And what Luke is saying here, the Lord is reversing that. The Lord is actually bringing people together from all nations and unifying them in his son through the gospel. There's going to be one people on the earth, one people of God, and they're coming. He's beginning with the Jews, but it's going to spread to Gentiles. Powerful picture here. The people are amazed and perplexed. Some mock. They say, are these guys drunk? And so it sets up for the next part where Paul, uh, where Peter is going to speak and explain from the scriptures what's happening. It's the second thing here in this text. The first is visitation. The second is revelation. And it's a revelation of the apostolic gospel. This is the gospel that the apostles learned from Jesus, and it's the gospel, it's the good news of the kingdom that they are sharing with this group here and then among the nations. Verses 14 through 21, I'm going to read it, make a few comments, then we're going to look at the last two in, in brief here. But verses 14 through 21 Peter stands with the eleven, he raises his voice, and he addresses them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these folks are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy, and I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, and smoky mist, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then he ends at verse 21, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we have a visitation, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and now we have Peter giving an explanation, the revelation. There's a point to all this. The Spirit is poured out to make much of God. The Spirit is poured out to glorify the Lord Jesus. And so that's what Peter is going to go on to explain here. He points to Joel. He says there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the verses 22 through 28, he's going to talk about the death 
and resurrection of Jesus. Where the spirit is poured out, Christ is glorified. Amen? So that's one way to look and see if the spirit is truly being poured out. Is much being made of Jesus? Is he being exalted? He very simply says, verses 22 through 28, that the resurrection of Jesus is part of God's plan. The Jews, along with the Romans, tried to put him to death. They did put him to death. But God reversed the plan because it was in his mind all along to raise him up and make him Lord and Messiah. Let's look briefly at what he says in verses 32 and 34. This Jesus God raised up and all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you both see and hear. And he works through some of the key passages that the New Testament prized Psalm 16, and he points to the scriptures and he says, folks, the scriptures preached that Messiah would come and he would be raised. The text really isn't about David. It's about the greater son of David. He says it's in the book. You're blind to it. Psalm 110. It's not about David. It's about the son of David. It describes in great detail the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, the greater David. How do they respond? Verses 37 through 40. They have a ho-hum response to this apostolic preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? wonder if the Lord would give us the power, the anointing, the unction to share the gospel at work, at school, among neighbors in such a way that we get to experience this. What do I do? What do I do? We're not convincing anyone. We're not twisting arms, but we're sharing in the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom that God loves, that God transforms, that God saves. He can rearrange your life. I'm longing to see that. What do I do? What do I do? And, and Peter says, what does he say? He says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, for your children and all who are far away. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to him. The power of the word of God. It's not a complex message. Christ came. He was crucified. He was raised. He ascended to the Father. He loves you. He can change your life. That is the gospel. It's why we exist. It's the center of our life together, isn't it? Lord, intoxicate us afresh with the gospel. Lord, let us see people turn, repent, do a 180, give their lives to you, give over the steering wheel of their life to you.
I, I remember hearing uh, the power of the gospel demonstrated in this, this story. There was a, a Muslim leader, and I, I'm not going to share where because there's some sensitivity around the location, but someone told me this story that there was a church that was burned down, and there was a Muslim leader, and he was walking through the church and the remains of the church, and there was a little piece of paper on the ground, and he bent over to pick it up, and guess what it was? A fragment from John 3, and it said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that Muslim leader picked up that little fragment and read it, and it went into his heart like a flaming arrow, and it haunted him. He couldn't shake it, and he molded it, and he would lay in bed. He could not get away from it. It was one little tiny piece of the gospel that went into him like a javelin, and he ended up seeking out Christians, and he became a powerful Christian. Christian missionary because of one little word from the gospel. This is the gospel we deal with. For God so loves the world. He loves us and he loves the folks out there. He gives his son. He gives his spirit. Very quickly here, along with revelation is habitation. Verses 41 through 42. We're getting ready to practice this at communion, but they've got 3,000 new believers that join. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The Apostle Peter preaches the apostolic gospel. And a spirit-empowered community forms. Verses 41 through 42 shows us exactly what they did. Look at verses 41 through 42. Those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added. They devoted themselves to four things. It's a popular verse around here. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. This is what we do in many of our groups. They give themselves to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, to fellowship, to being a family on mission together, practicing koinonia, breaking bread, sharing meals, sharing the Lord's Supper together, and then being people of prayer. This becomes really kind of the irrigation system. The Spirit is poured out, and then there's an irrigation system for it to continue to flow through. A fourth thing here, we'll end with this, and then we'll actually celebrate the Lord's Supper together. A fourth dynamic here in a biblical model of revival is expansion. Not only is there habitation, there's a place for the Lord to dwell, the Holy Spirit, but there's expansion. Verses 43 through 47 describe awe and signs and wonders and miracles that rest on the people. They're giving generously and taking care of one another. So I want us to think about this passage. I urge you over this next week, why don't you take Acts 2? Pray, meditate, work through it. Ask the Lord to bring revival, visitation like this. Not according to a human plan, but according to a biblical plan. Lord, give us visitation of the Holy Spirit, revelation of the gospel. Make us into a habitation where you indwell. Expand us, Lord.